0: Fabrics in this world that are as simple and at the same time as complicated and controversial as tartan. It's designed using a simple grid but it isn't easy to weave. It takes focus and concentration. I know I've tried it. But it's in its meaning that it becomes truly complex, able to express simultaneously a series of contradictions. It's both an emblem of highland rebellion and the uniform of the military forces that oppose them. It's a high fashion fabric seen on the catwalk and the mark of a shepherd from the hills. It's the symbol of a tight family clan network based in a small geographic area and also a global brand that has traveled the world. Tartan is many things, and everyone has their own view of it. Join me in this new episode to explore the many shades of Tartan. Welcome to Haptic and Hughes' Tales of Textiles. My name is Jo Andrews, And I'm a hand weaver, interested in what cloth tells us about ourselves and our societies. Often the stories and information that textiles can give us are ignored and we lose a whole dimension of human experience.
1: This podcast is about trying
0: to restore that.
1: So that that constant shape-shifting thing. For some people, Tartan still, where it's relevant at all, is an image of repression. For some people, it's an image of belonging, of courage, of important family ties. The myth of Tartan is constantly, even in our time, being reborn, redeveloped, refreshed, and it continues to mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people.
0: That's Bill Taylor, who some of you will recognise as my co-presenter for the separate Friends of Haptic and Hugh podcast. He was born and grew up in Scotland and has always been a Tartan sceptic, until we went last month to the new exhibition called Simply Tartan. It's at the Victoria and Albert Museum in Dundee, and it's the first exhibition about Tartan in Scotland, in living memory, which is extraordinary. One of the curators is Kirsty Hassard.
2: I think the beauty of Tartan to me is that it has some sort of resonance with everyone. So whether you absolutely hate it and think that it's super kitsch and it represents a Scotland that doesn't exist anymore, or if you celebrate it and you wear the kilt and it's a massive part of your national identity, I think it's what's really interesting is that everyone's got an opinion on it and everyone has some sort of resonance with it, even if it is a sort of resonance of, I really don't like that and that's got nothing to do with me. But you have some sort of like opinion on it. I think for me personally, I mean, my family are Scottish. I've got, from as far as I've been able to trace back genealogy, I've got Scottish ancestors dating back to at least the 17th century, but my family don't have a tartan and I didn't really have... I felt a strong association with Tartan until I did this exhibition. I think it's yeah, really opened up my eyes, I would say, to maybe my own identity and how Tartan is connected to that.
0: But just as Tartan is a cloth of contradiction, and is as likely to be found on a Vivian Westwood dress costing thousands of pounds as on a nineteen seventies boy band like the Bay City Rollers, there is no one definition anything in this story and every time you think something is certain you find you've opened another box of thistles here's one where does the word tartan itself come from
2: that's much debated but um it's supposed to come from either french or italian tertain and they think at some point in the 15th or 16th century that was adapted into to Tartan. So actually one of the earliest objects that we've got in the exhibition from 1530 is um, a pair of tartan trues being ordered for King James V, the father of Mary Queen of Scots. And that refers to, I think that refers to tartan or Tartan. So I think at, at that point in history, people would have an understanding of, of what Tartan was, but the name would probably still be quite quite new. And in French, Tartane
0: means a checked cloth. Kirsty defines a tartan as two different colours of thread that cross over to make a third colour on a grid pattern. The origin of tartan is another box of thistles, but a scrap of fabric that has survived 500 years in a bog in Glen, Africa, has just been researched and carbon dated to the 1500s.
2: What makes it the first real tartan is that when you look at it, although obviously, you know, it's been very discoloured by being in a bog, you can see distinct parallels and similarities with what we refer to as a tartan in 2023. So you see those two strands of colours that are crossing over to make a third colour. You see the same rules that designers of tartan and weavers would adhere to in terms of the idea of colour and the pattern and the proportion. And all those are really clear, although it's it's not even like a length of, of tartan, it's still a fragment, but you still see those three distinct rules present. With those basics,
0: We come forward 200 years to the 1700s, the turbulent century of many changes and revolutions. America declared its independence for one, but it was also a time of great ferment and revolution in Scotland that threatened Britain as a whole. This was a conflict in which Tartan played a central role. In 1745, a serious rebellion led by Bonnie Prince Charlie broke out in the highlands of Scotland, the Jacobite Uprising. The last of the Catholic Stuarts to try to take back the British throne led his troops, all dressed in their own clan tartans, south to try to take the throne from the British Protestant Hanoverian kings in London. At first they had stunning success, before the Highlanders were brutally put down by the British army at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. In defeat, their Tartan became a marker of dangerous rebellion. Here's Kirsty.
2: What is really interesting with the Jacobite Uprising in particular is how it's used so overtly as a political textile and obviously that's carried through until the modern day. You know, you, you still see it being used as, as forms of, of propaganda and particularly post Culloden, so post 1746, when obviously the Jacobite Uprising is repressed and Bonnie Prince Charlie leaves Scotland and goes into exile. And there's very much that idea of martyrdom and this sort of lost cause And around that you get lots of these little tartan fragments that were gathered by supporters of Bonnie Prince Charlie and then kept either in private collections or then eventually museum collections and are really prized possessions and are still revered, almost like religious relics in the modern day. Running sort of parallel to that is obviously the suppression of Highland culture that happens post-1745 and 1746, where there was a British government ban on important aspects of Highland culture. So, for example, the speaking of Gaelic was banned, the playing of the bagpipes was banned, and Highland dress was banned. But at the same
0: time, the only place you could legally wear your tartan was in the British Army, which started recruiting Highland regiments and yes, dress
2: them in kilts. And that was one of the ways you could get around wearing tartan would be if you wore it as a form of military dress, which is why you still see in the 1750s and 1760s examples of prominent members of Scottish aristocracy wearing tartan because they're wearing it as a form of military dress. But I think that's sort of that really interesting, the polarity of that relationship between how tartan was used and the kind of latter end of the 18th century as a textile, technically of repression, you know, by uh, British government forces who were repressing a lot of Highland culture. A lot of them were wearing tartan themselves, which is obviously seen as being an iconic part of Highland culture.
0: Kirsty says that this duality in tartan came up over and over again in many different contexts as they put the exhibition together.
2: There's letters from textile manufacturers to slave owners in the North Americas in the late 18th century where the slave owners or um, plantation owners are writing to textile manufacturers in Scotland, asking them for lengths of cloth, and specifically tartan, as a way to mark out that they owned that particular slave. There's also runaway slave adverts from the 18th century as well, as the title suggests, that slaves would run away from their owners. What they were wearing was recorded, and a lot of the time that was tartan. So by a sort of extension, you can assume that, because it was such a popular textile that the textile that was being used to oppress and control these people was also probably being worn but in a different way by the people who owned them.
0: took the Hanoverian kings nearly 80 years to recover from their fright over Scotland. But in 1822, George IV went to Edinburgh on a trip tightly stage-managed by the novelist Sir Walter Scott and Tartan took centre stage.
2: So we to welcome George to Edinburgh using Tartan as a way of almost say propaganda propaganda maybe isn't necessarily the right word but you know a way to sort of display scottishness and it's done in a very ceremonial way there's records at the time of the uniforms and the sort of ceremonial costumes that were commissioned for it so a lot of the textile manufacturers in edinburgh and particularly outside of edinburgh wilson's a bannet being been a main one were just sort of overwhelmed with work because um, the amount of lengths of fabric that they were having to produce, but in terms of legitimising it after its sort of rebellious reputation post 1745, it definitely does that because George IV famously wears a kilt, and is obviously parodied for that. There's lots of satirical prints of how he wore the kilt completely wrong and wore like a short version of it, more with tights, etc. But yeah, in terms of legitimising it, particularly for the British royal family and that sort of adoption by the British royal family, that's when it really starts as, yeah, 1822. And you can definitely trace that relationship to Queen Victoria, in particular, adopting it 20 years later.
0: And it was Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, who bought Balmoral for her as her Scottish country home, where, to put it kindly, she went tart and mad.
2: Balmoral scene has been a place of retreats and away from court life in London and yes she refers to this in her journals but I mean obviously you know it's the setting of Balmoral. Balmoral's in a quite rural location it's um, quite remote but it's very much down to how Balmoral is decorated by herself and by Prince Albert and obviously a huge amount of that is to do with tartan so one of the watercolours that we have in the exhibition is a watercolour of Queen Victoria's bedroom at Balmoral and it's got a tartan carpet and tartan bed hangings and um, curtains and table covers and it's that sort of protective or sort of I think comforting element of tartan that you see continually used in interior design to sort of communicate a particular message that really starts arguably with Queen Victoria at Balmoral and obviously her and Prince Albert wore items of tartan they dressed their children in tartan their um, staff at Balmoral all wore tartan (laughs) Prince Albert Supposedly designed a Tartan, the Bomoro Tartan. Once Tartan was adopted
0: by royalty, a connection that continues to this day, it filtered out across the grand families of Scotland. And everyone who was anyone had a Tartan, or often several Tartans, made up for them. These often had very little to do with ancient tradition and much more to do with the Victorian's eye for a good story and a nice commercial opportunity. This brought in time a strong reaction against tartan from many Scots themselves. Here's Bill.
1: I was a teenager in the 1960s in Scotland and yes, a lowland coal mining village working-class village, I thought Tartan had nothing to do with me at all. Tartan was for posh families. It was something that harked back to a sentimental idea of the Scottish past. And not only did did I not think it had anything to do with me, but actually I thought it got in the way of trying to establish a new cultural identity for Scotland. And I was impatient and very conflicted about that thing. I wanted... Because I was a young man, I wanted Scotland to be seen as an exciting small nation with enormous possibility. And everywhere I went, it seemed, I saw tartan shortbread boxes, tartan scarves, people from other parts of the world talking endlessly about their family heritage and Tartan's expression of that. And it seemed to me as a working-class boy that Tartan was for posh people, that Tartan was about the past, that it was about these things that had nothing to do with me, especially the idea that Tartan was a marker of your connection to a landed aristocracy somewhere several hundred years ago in history. And certainly in a coal mining village in southern Scotland, that had absolutely nothing to do with us.
0: But the exhibition showed Bill that tartan has something to offer beyond this.
1: But what I learned at, at the VA exhibition at a D was that the meaning of tartan is a constantly shifting thing, that even to this day, it means all sorts of things at the same time. As you know, I was very struck by this idea of rebellion and oppression. So it can be a marker of the state's oppression of people who don't conform, but it can be an act of rebellion. For punk, bizarrely, you know, Doc Martens Boots, Vivian Westwood. Can you imagine punk saying, oh, this is an expression of my sort of refusal to conform to everything else that's going on in fashion and social life? Thanks to that V&A exhibition, the meaning of Tartan became much, much more complex. And actually, I was able to, if you like, uh, rid myself of my youthful prejudice and understand a new complexity in Tartan. All over the world, Tartan is revered for all sorts of different reasons and still has enormous meaning for a vast range of people who think that Tartan is something special For their identity and I wouldn't want to take that away from anyone but I'd love to see and I think the V&A exhibition does this, I'd love to see the idea of Tartan being continually updated and continually brought back to life.
0: And the other area where Tartan has acquired new meaning is in its use as a military uniform. British soldiers have taken Tartan on their kilts all over the world.
1: Remember how Tartan in the military context started? After the Jacobite rebellions in the 18th century, a form of civil war in the UK and Scotland, it must have been a very frightening and dangerous time. Uh, the Crown, uh, the British state, uh, set up Scottish regiments that were particularly designed to dampen down the rebellion. And they were deliberately, as an act of psychological warfare, they were deliberately dressed in tongue because the Highland clans who'd been part of the Jackbite Rebellion were not able, after their defeat, to wear Highland dress. That was forbidden by law. But the new Scottish regiments that were designed to keep the rebellion down were specifically dressed in tongue. So it became an image of the power of the state uh, against any rebellion. Um, And since then, obviously, those Scottish regiments have fought all over the empire uh, with British forces. And that tartan for them has become a marker of their courage, of their history. So that's another example of the continual shape-shifting of tartan. So many of the forces who did wear tartan after the Jacobite rebellions gave their lives in dreadful circumstances in times of war for the British state. And you can only think about their courage.
0: In time, soldiers' tartan began to acquire a mythical status. The fighters who wore it were feared, but the tartan itself was seen as gracing protection to those who wore it. One of the most poignant items in the tartan exhibition is a Cameron Highlanders kilt, still mud-stained from the trenches of the first world war.
1: And he came home wounded, nursed back to life by his family and his family said let's keep the mud of the trenches on the kilt as a marker of the sacrifice of all these men in war because these Scottish regiments had a sort of belief, certainly a hope, that the Tartan would be a sort of talismanic defence against death which of course it wasn't and I was haunted by that idea.
0: There's also a small tartan sewing kit, or hussif, made for a soldier departing for war, as Kirsty explains.
2: So it's like a little sewing kit that soldiers would take with them in the army so they could do mending, basic mending, on their uniform. And the hussif that we have in the exhibition was, was made for a soldier by someone called Unity Matthews. And this is in the early 19th century, and the soldier was going off to fight Uh, during the Napoleonic War and she made him this sort of little I guess like a purse or a wallet of tartan and added in seeds and that were meant to be for protection and then gave him this as he went off to fight I guess as a kind of way of keeping him safe away from harm which ultimately I don't think did work he did in fact pass away but I think it's all about that sort of powerful meaning of tartan and its intrinsic value and what it can do as a textile protection
0: but it's via the military that tartan begins to go international. It first starts in 1815 with Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo.
2: And then subsequently Scottish regiments being stationed, or Highland regiments being stationed in Paris, and obviously wearing celts and in regimental tartans, and French women being completely fascinated by this. And then Subsequently, these tartan making a big appearance in fashion plates of 1814 and 1815, some of which we have in the exhibition. So women wearing tartan boots or tartan shawls or or tartan dresses. And we think this is sort of directly inspired by the sort of military obsession that then becomes a part of everyday dress. And
0: once it enters the lexicon of fashion, tartan really never leaves it. Coco Chanel and Elsa Schiaparelli both adopted it in the 20th century. And then, famously, in this century, Vivian Westwood was one of its great fans. it was a different movement altogether that gave Tartan truly international wings. And that was the great emigration from Scotland in the 19th century. The creation of the Scottish diaspora in Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand, Africa and India. They left home, but they often took home with them in the form of Tartan and in doing so, they created a new relationship with Tartan. One that spoke of a connection with home and long lost family. Something simpler and more joyful.
2: I don't think I can quite define it, but I think North America has got a much more unashamed relationship with Tartan than we do in Scotland or or certainly Britain they're much more forward at celebrating it you know the fact that you know as we record this it's just a week after tartan week which is obviously this big celebration of all things tartan in, in New York and you know people come from all over the world and a delegation is sent from Scotland to celebrate it whereas I don't think in Scotland we quite have that same sort of celebratory relationship with it. I don't know if it's just because in Scotland, maybe it's just more part of everyday life here and it's not seen as something to sort of showcase on that scale.
0: And as our world changes in this century, Tartan's simple grid and pattern is expanding and transforming to express new ideas of family and connection.
3: One of the last ones I designed was actually for a local Scottish family here, who are a mixture of Scottish and Colombian, an interesting mix. There was a request to bring in the Scottish glens and the Colombian coffee plantations. So we were mixing greens with purples and heathery kind of colours. Then there was this overcheck request that the Colombian the yellow of the Colombian flag had to be incorporated. But the most specific part of this tartan cloth that you can't actually see, is the fact that the father, the head of the family was a salsa dancer, and the set, so the pattern repeat, and each of the stripes in the tartan is based on the beats of the salsa. So when the the feet move, there is a line. And when you're still there is a block. So that's how I designed the tartan and it's registered on that basis.
0: That's Andrea Chappell, a modern kilt maker and tartan designer who works in Forres in North Scotland. Andrea was born in the south of England but with Scottish ancestry. Her kilt journey began with quite another life as an exhibition designer. Every time she completed a project she decided to commemorate it by commissioning a kilt from an Edinburgh kilt maker
3: and then every project that I built, I went back to him. It started with a sort of just request for well, could I have a red one? Could I have a yellow one? Could I have a denim one <laughs> and then it started to get a bit more elaborate and the places that I was working were also getting further afield and I kind of went on to a grander scale and so I would turn up with cloth that I had purchased where I was building these projects and would start to embed more things. And it got to I would say 20 years on and I had then a wardrobe off of kilts and was wearing these on a daily basis and they just became my uniform.
0: And then just over seven years ago, she decided that she wanted to re-establish her connection with making. And by chance, she saw an advertisement for a kilt school. And for me, it made total sense when I
3: saw a little uh, advertisement for the Keith kilt school. And I thought, ah, well, there we are. There's, of course, that's what I should do and I was not in any way even a dressmaker so it turned out that that's actually more helpful than not in the making of a kilts because traditionally made kilts are all hand stitched so you don't need to know how to use a machine. Whilst you do need to understand the form of the body, you don't need to understand the construction of garments per se. You, through the hand stitching and the and the construction
0: of a kilt understand that particular process in a very specific way. She has now joined a craft that is officially registered as endangered in the UK. Her orders often come from people celebrating a life event or a specific milestone. The
3: kind of most traditional point at which kilts are commissioned is either a wedding or often a graduation which kind of aligns with their 21st birthday. Those are sort of the long-standing traditional points. But I've found in particular with women a lot of the time they're commemorating a a big birthday. I've had commemorations of uh, significant achievements like a PhD. I'm just doing one for a gentleman who is a Scottish Nigerian so will be Weaving in some element of a showcase, the hand woven strip cloth in cotton into a tartan, and we will be
0: making something that he'll be wearing when he's given his MBE. Which is a British honour for service to the community. One of the wonderful things about Andrea's work is that she is an expert at mixing different materials in a kilt, partly for reasons of sustainability she doesn't make everything from new, but partly to give the kilt an opportunity to say something truthful about the person who wears it. So you're you're making a length of
3: nearly nine metres in, you know, eight to nine metres. So it's a hell of a lot of cloth in a traditional kilt. So as well as the sustainability aspect to it, there's also obviously the lovely thing that like this, he would like to celebrate both aspects of his heritage. It's a lovely thing that cloth does, where we have this combination that we can express that is embedded in us all. It's not just one thing. We are not just Scottish. You know, very much like my myself, I would say I am uh, this, this lovely sort of woven mix of the British Isles. And so, why not bring that together physically in different cloths? Because it's just a lovely way to express how individual we, we all are and, and made up of different parts.
0: And subduing nine metres of cloth is a skill all of its own. You're, you're fighting cloth until you've really got the
3: pleats in. I mean, in most cases, the technical alignment... And shaping of the pleating when you are going through that particular part of the process is, I would say, probably the most technical element and the most difficult element. The needles we use are very small and thin and the thread is very strong and thick. So actually, for me, it's it's more threading than needle, (laughs) as basic as that sounds. But my eyes are getting worse and worse. So, yes, it can be basic. (laughs) But... Uh, You you are taking one flat length of cloth and moulding it to a body shape through a mixture of cleats and flat areas. So it is quite technical to interpret the cloth and interpret the body, the shape of the body into the cloth only through pleating.
0: One of the most technical parts of working with tartan is deciding how to pleat the pattern. A small difference here makes a radical change to the finished item.
3: Well there's, there's two ways really the kilt can differ quite dramatically using exactly the same tartan. One is how the kilt maker is interpreting the patterns. You can pleat to the stripe, the block, the half block and some people call it other things but what that is doing is that's changing how the tartan appears in the pleated section, making it distinctly different from front to back and each pleat would be set up for the shape of the pleat to be in a specific area on the tartan that repeats itself through each pleat or sometimes it alternates potentially. So what you might be doing is you might be looking at a tartan that has a red overcheck in it and a yellow overcheck in it and you might be saying, I'd like to bring out more of that red. So each pleat would align on the centre of the red line and that would give you a pleat to the stripe. You might then start to add more into that and take a different part of the tartan and you might choose to alternate one sort of landing point, if you like, in the centre of a pleat with a different landing point on the next pleat and that will change the depth of your pleats and you might alternate the depths of your pleat. So that's the sort of aesthetic change but there's also differences in the ways in which you can pleat. Many people only really see knife pleating as a a sort of traditional kilt but in actual fact kilts can be pleated as a box pleat, as a double box pleat, as a King Goosey pleat, and as a military vowel cleat, and all of those are traditional kilts and they are designs for pleating that have been used for hundreds of years.
0: Tartans are listed with the Scottish Register of Tartans, a government body that keeps the complete list of official Tartans. Anyone can search it. Each Tartan must be unique and have its own story. These days Hotels, cities, commercial companies, public institutions, football clubs and even museums like the V&A have their own Tartan. The V&A's is based on their extraordinary building in Dundee, which was designed by a Japanese architect. The Tartan is grey, white and black, with flashes of shocking pink inspired by the couturier, Elsa Schiaparelli's love for the Highlands of Scotland. Back in forays, Andrea is also designing new tartans too. Another one is actually one that I'm designing at
3: the moment for the atelier, for myself, so that we can offer something about the area that changes through the season. So there's actually four and each of them are things to do with region of Murray that I live in that are specific to here. So we have a very, very clean air and a, a very beautiful lichen, a very beautiful moss that is actually a protected moss, and an incredible coastline. So all of these things are coming into the design of a tartan for each season that reflects Murray. The first one is winter, and it is a particular tree that I pass every day on my dog walk and it's the colors within this tree and the lichen that is forming over as it gets wet with the rain. So it's a kind of burgundy and peaty brown base that brings the bark in and it has uh, almost blues, a kind of slaty blue-gray with very kind of pale greens and a very sharp mossy
0: green through it as well. And that will be followed with spring, summer and autumn. There's no doubting Tartan's enduring appeal. And Andrea thinks that comes from the idea of Scotland.
3: I think it, it's because they can find a connection to either the cloth or, or the country. You know, there, a lot of people will say, I, I love Scotland. And there are many Tartans that can be worn that are not clan tartans that can give you that connection with Scotland and I think there's just that recognition that and and hopefully as well the exhibition has highlighted this in the broadest of senses that there is a bit of that in all of us you know there is a connection there with that cloth in many many different cultures outside of,
0: of our shores. And for me that's part of the puzzle here. Scotland is not the only culture that has developed patterns and weaves based on a grid. Madras from India, cloth from the hill regions of Myanmar, even the familiar and much-loved blue and red pattern of the Maasai plaid in East Africa. So why did Scotland get to claim this? Here's Kirsty.
2: I think a lot of the heritage of tartan really chimes with the history of Scotland or you know that the industries that are really strong within Scotland. So the fact that the woolen industry had been able to move to industrialization and sell it on a kind of mass manufactured scale in the 19th century and that point where this idea of Scotland was being sold to the world. I guess like trading links and market links already existed in Scotland at the time when tartan was becoming prominent. It's so interesting because obviously if you go to most countries they've got a, a version of what we would call a tartan but obviously to them it's a completely different design history or design trajectory. So yeah as you say Madras which is not a tartan but some people conflate it with tartan. Globally there's hundreds of yeah, hundreds of different sort of grid textiles that may look like tartan but obviously are completely different. But I don't know essentially it might just be good marketing to be honest. That, um, <laughs> that did it for Scotland's. And part of what Kirsty calls marketing
0: is a good story. And whatever else you think about Tartan, it's a material with a multitude of intricate myths and meanings behind it, that track and trace their way through history and continue to decorate and give sense to our lives today.
1: Tartan all over the world has a whole range of messages. And let's not forget the important one. A lot of the time it's beautiful, and a lot of the time it's fun. But behind all of that, it's another example of how cloth speaks probably more directly, more powerfully than most other things about our past, our present, and our relationship with history.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue and a huge thank you to Andrea Chappell, Kirsty Hassard and Bill Taylor for their reflections on tartan and its many meanings. If you would like to see pictures of some of the events and tartans they have spoken about in this podcast or read a full script you can find them at Haptic and Hue's website at www hapticandhue.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee, or by becoming a member of Friends of Haptic and Hugh. This keeps the podcast truly independent and free from advertising and sponsorship. It also brings you extra content every month. And in Friends, we've just posted an interview with the head of the studio of the Royal School of Needlework about her experience of working on the embroidery that was on display during the recent coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla. If you'd like to hear this or listen to any of the other extra interviews and podcasts posted there, you can find out more on the website at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash friends.